And well, welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday. TGIF, or in the UK, TGIO. Trust gone, it's on. Whatever it means, we are live in London for you shortly as the Conservative Party launches a new leadership search a day after Liz Truss called it quits, ending the shortest leadership term of any UK prime minister. A new PM promised as early as next week. Hashtag bring back Boris trending as we speak. Is Boris Mark II really in view? Honestly speaking, we don't have a clue, but we'll try. Also this hour, we're awaiting the sentencing of former Trump adviser Steve Bannon, found guilty of contempt of Congress for failing to cooperate with an investigation following the January 6th Capitol riot. The Department of Justice has recommended a six-month prison term. We will bring that news to you the moment it breaks. Also, Twitter, fitter, certainly leaner, if a report from The Washington Post proves correct. Elon Musk discussed cutting 75 percent of the firm's workforce if and when he takes control. Twitter shares also under pressure pre-market on fears the deal might be up for a U.S. security view. Tech analyst Dan Ives will give us his take later on in the show. And for now, nothing positive to tweet about on Wall Street. U.S. stocks on track for a third day of losses, as you can see there red on the screen. Despite further solid earnings reports, the benchmark U.S. 10-year Treasury yield hitting a new 14-year high, with the futures market now expecting Fed interest rates above 5% by next year. And as you can see there at the bottom of your screen, European stock markets also softer too, with the pound softer against the U.S. dollar. Nowhere near last month's gut-wrenching plunge during the worst of the trust-induced budget fuss. But fresh concern that new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's fiscal plan due on Halloween, of course, 31st of October, might be delayed by the search for a new prime minister. Much to discuss today, as always. First, though, we'll head to Ukraine, where homes and businesses have been plunged into darkness. There are now rolling blackouts in Kyiv as Russian strikes have knocked out as much as 40 percent of its power infrastructure and a senior Ukrainian official warning that Russia could open a new front in the war from Belarus. CNN's senior diplomatic editor Nick Robertson joins us now from Kyiv. Let's begin with the rolling blackouts, Nick. What are we talking about in terms of hours with power and hours without. Yeah, you can lose power for four hours here. Uh, expect, the government says, to get it back for six hours, and then you could lose it again for another four hours. There's a lot of very heavy advice coming from the government, telling people between those sort of peak usage hours, 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. in the evening, don't use your, your heavy-duty electrical devices, the things like washing machines, heaters, those sorts of things. Don't use those at the peak hours in the evening. That's the way to try to uh, spread the load. But there's also advice such as make sure you've got plenty of water stored away because when the electricity is off, you won't get water. Um, have extra blankets in the house. Have extra socks. Charge your phones. Charge the battery packs. So a lot of advice. And even in some cities, uh, there are sort of electricity consumption police out, uh, regular police, but on their patrols, making sure that there aren't extra lights on the city of Kriviri. The police there are, are making sure that people aren't sort of leaving lights on on business premises overnight where they don't need to be on. So this is a very, very big uh, and sharp issue for the government. If they cannot keep pace with the attrition to the electricity supplies in terms of repairs, um, then the system could degrade further. So spread out the usage. That's how 
the government's trying to get around the situation right now. Um, important advice as well for people as we head further into winter as well to be prepared with things like blankets and socks, just the basics. Um, something else that caught my attention, Nick, as well, the comments from the senior military official of Ukraine suggesting that there's growing danger of a new front being opened via, via Belarus. I mean, that would split the focus of, of Ukraine as well in terms of where their force is and where their, their focus is now. What more detail do we have on that and the concern? Yeah, it's a concern, of course. Uh, the sirens, the air raid sirens went off here in Kyiv a little while ago. And oftentimes uh, the sirens here will go off because military activity is detected, either potentially missiles being prepared or fighter jets taken to the air in Belarus, because Belarus is already being used by Russia as a platform to attack here, and it's relatively close. So Belarus is relatively close to the capital. When Russia launched that advance um, into Ukraine uh, earlier in the year, a lot of the troops came through Russia. But there's a real concern now that as um, Belarus and Russia now have formed this joint force several weeks ago, this was announced, um, that this could be a threat to the northern border. Order, moving the potential for that advance further to the west. So, of course, as you say, this is a concern for authorities because they have a big offensive in the south. But if you have a threat from the north, then do you have to divert troops up there? Is this a real and genuine threat? And the assessment at the moment seems to fall in the area of, the, of actually Ukrainian officials feel that the threat from the north is genuine. They say that it, uh, in recent days they've seen military equipment and personnel moving into positions north of the border. So this is the growing concern balanced against, of course, the need to keep troops in the south and keep that offensive to retake territory ongoing there as well. The challenges continue. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. And later in the show, we'll hear from the Ukrainian infrastructure minister about how the country can rebuild and the immediate priorities, of course, too. OK, let's move on. And the race is on again. The British Conservative Party searching for a new leader and a new prime minister, with Liz Truss admitting defeat after just 45 days in office. Possible contenders include former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and he's expected to get support from the current defence minister. At the moment, I would lean towards Boris Johnson. I think he will still have some questions to answer around, obviously, that investigation. But I know when I was Secretary of Defence, he invested in defence, he supported me, he supported uh, the actions this country has taken to keep us safe. Bianca Nabilo joins us on this. That would be an important vote of confidence in Boris Johnson from uh, the Defence Minister, Bianca. But the political jockeying has already begun. I've seen the hashtag bring back Boris. Uh, ready for Rishi, of course, Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor. Um, just map out again what we're seeing in terms of voices of support for various candidates and how it's going to work in terms of who we come to to the decision. Well, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, is tipped as one of those big beasts whose endorsement will go a long way. He's a formidable character and also popular with the membership himself. And he's stayed in post for a considerable period of time, given the, the last two governments that we've had here in the United Kingdom. What he said was significant as well. He said that he was leaning towards the former Prime Minister because mandate, credibility and 
justification of having another prime minister without an election was going to become a question. And you hear that from inside the Boris Johnson camp, that because he's already won an election, he'd be the natural next leader of the Conservative Party to avoid those difficult questions over whether or not the party can really have a second prime minister that was unelected by the British public. In terms of where we are in the runners and riders that are emerging, obviously Boris Johnson is the large focus in Westminster. Will he? Won't he? The consensus is, is that Johnson doesn't like to lose. So behind the scenes, he's trying to figure out, along with his team, will he get to that critical threshold of 100 MPs? And if it looks like he will, then I'm sure there's nothing that can stand in his way. And of course, given the Shakespearean nature of British politics at the moment, one of the contenders that he would be standing against, if successful, would be Rishi Sunak, his former chancellor, and for many in the Johnson camp, anathema, because he was criticised as being the one to ultimately stab Boris Johnson in the back, which precipitated that waterfall of resignations that led to the end of Boris Johnson in number 10 last time round. Another key figure, though, is Penny Morden. So she was the second runner-up in the previous leadership contest. And she is one to watch because the acrimony between Johnson and Sunak and those camps is quite acute. And there's a lot of factionalism. She could present herself as the unity candidate and make quite a strong case for doing so. But it will all depend on the members if more than one person gets the support of 100 MPs. And if polls are anything to go by, it's suggested that Boris Johnson would have the edge. It's sort of digging into the weeds of um, recent history, but I think they're important weeds in this case and perhaps big ones. For Boris Johnson in particular, one thing that perhaps stands in the way is that parliamentary committee investigation into whether or not he misled or lied to lawmakers over the Partygate scandal. Of course, to remind our viewers that I'm not sure they will have forgotten, but the, the actions of the government during, during COVID. Bianca, what happens if that parliamentary committee finds against a then re-established British Prime Minister, would he have to step down once again? I mean, the revolving door reference that the leader of the opposition used yesterday um, springs to mind. Julia, this is such an important point. And I was speaking to some MPs earlier who said they feel like there's a sense of collective amnesia about the circumstances under which Boris Johnson ultimately was forced out of Downing Street. That investigation around 140 of his own MPs, 148, I believe, voting against him in that confidence vote. So many letters from his own party saying that he wasn't fit for office anymore. But this investigation is key for the reason that you outlined, because if the Parliamentary Standards Committee finds Boris Johnson guilty of having mislead, misled Parliament along the line, um, and, and that investigation was into whether or not he inform the House of Commons that no rules have been broken inside Number 10, inside the government buildings during the COVID um, lockdown. And if he was found to have not been honest when he gave that response to the House of Commons, then that's misleading Parliament. You can't willingly lie to Parliament. That is a resigning offence. So that could mean a suspension or losing your seat as an MP. Now, naturally, that could be a big issue because if Boris Johnson did, in a you know, astounding turn of events, find his way back into Number 10 by next week, and then faces this investigation, which we understand will occur in November and go on for about three and a half weeks or thereabouts, then that could put the party into another phase of instability. And I think the British public are just getting quite impatient that they want the biggest issues that are facing this country addressed and don't want that revolving door to keep on turning and more uncertainty about who is going to be occupying that building behind me. Yanka, someone on social media, when I when I 
post out this conversation can cover my face with that headbang emoji, quite frankly, at this moment. Um, Bianca Lavina, great to have you with us for your context. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on now to Iran, where for weeks, ordinary Iranians have been risking their lives to fight for civil rights. CNN's Germana Karadze recently spoke to one woman who told her what she has experienced and why she's risking her safety to take a stand. We want to warn you that some of the images in this report are disturbing. Every day for the past five weeks, a little bit of video trickles out of Iran giving us a small window into the repressive republic. A snapshot of the bravery of protesters and the ruthlessness of regime forces. The government's internet restrictions have made it hard for us to speak to those on the front lines of this battle for change. But we got a rare opportunity to speak briefly with a 28-year-old protester. We're not identifying her for her safety. When I arrived to protest location, um, I was really scared and I, and I was uh, like, uh, what am I doing here? Uh, here is a war zone and I was so scared. I realized that if I want to make a change, I should start with myself. That defiance was met with sheer brutality. Women have been beaten up with batons and shot at. This protester's body riddled with shotgun pallets, according to rights group Hangau. Many have been dragged by their uncovered hair. And according to human rights groups and Amnesty International, some sexually assaulted in plain sight by the very forces claiming to be the enforcers of morality. Individuals and passage forces attacked people and beat them and um, to scare people. I saw a lady who was coming back from class and the passage forces hit her. Um, with a baton in her sensitive place and um, she couldn't walk. She recounts in terrifying detail what she and others have witnessed firsthand. Security forces roaming the streets on motorbikes attacking people, opening fire on peaceful protesters and chasing them into buildings. When we were attacked, um, uh, we ran into a store and the salesman closed the closed and locked the door um, so the forces couldn't see inside. Um, my heart was pounding and I was shaking. Um, uh, my friend said, uh, do you want to go home? I said, um, no, like home. Um, I didn't come to run away. Nothing has happened to me yet and I, wa- uh, and I was able to escape. But it is possible at any moment. Um, we are now in the worst time of our life. We do everything we can despite all the stress, even if it costs our lives. Too many lives already lost in a battle, they say, for women, life, liberty. But that's not stopping a fearless generation rising up to reclaim freedoms they've never known. CNN, Istanbul. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move as Russia continues to target Ukrainian energy supplies. The country's country's infrastructure minister tells us about a partnership with the United States to help the nation rebuild. Welcome back to First Move. A pro-Russian official is accusing Kyiv of targeting a river crossing in the city of Kherson. His claims two people were killed in Thursday's missile strike and 10 others were injured. That's happening as Russia conducts a mass evacuation of civilians from the city. Fled Pygen has all the details. 
As Ukrainian forces press their counteroffensive in the country's south, Russia is resorting to what appear to be increasingly desperate measures in the areas they control in the Kherson region. Thousands of people waiting to be evacuated by boat. The puppet authorities installed by Moscow claiming they've already taken some 15,000 out of Kherson city. Why did you decide to evacuate, the reporter asks. I have a small child to take care of, you see, the woman answers. Russia says it's ferrying these people to safety. The Ukrainians say these are little more than deportations. Russia has imposed martial law in this and other areas of Ukraine controlled by its forces. The Russians say they are increasing the intensity of their mobilization effort. Russian President Vladimir Putin visiting soldiers outside Moscow and himself even firing a sniper rifle. And Putin's continued aerial assault on Ukraine's energy infrastructure is starting to take a toll. Ukraine's authorities announcing the need for partial blackouts in most of the country as intense strikes on power plants continue using cheap kamikaze drones which Kiev says Iran has provided to the Russian army. The spokeswoman for Russia's foreign ministry rejecting the allegations. This is nothing more than a collection of unsubstantiated inferences and far-fetched assumptions that Britain and France are trying to build into a structure. And every time it all collapses in front of everyone. But on Russian TV, this military expert and defense ministry advisor seemed to admit the origin of the drones, not realizing his mic was hot. He tells the host, Let's not shake the boat too much. We all know that they are Iranian, but the authorities did not admit that. But the Russians are now admitting things are not going well on the battlefield. The top commander acknowledging his forces' position in Ukraine's south is, quote, tense. Fred Plekin, CNN, Kramatorsk, Ukraine. On a rare site near Moscow on Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin visiting a training ground for new recruits. Accompanied by Russia's defense minister, President Putin's presence at the facility was apparently meant to demonstrate his personal support for the new soldiers. President Putin even lying down at the gun range to fire off a few rounds with a sniper rifle, which is what you're seeing in front of you now. The Kremlin said its partial mobilization to draft 300,000 Russian civilians into the military is nearly complete. What's not mentioned are the hundreds of thousands of Russian men who've also fled the country to avoid that conscription. Vladimir Putin has a long history of presenting a macho image to the world. It's a public persona he's carefully crafted over more than 20 years in power. As CNN's Brian Todd explains. A made-for-TV moment, Putin-style. The Russian president makes a personal, hands-on show of force, firing a sniper rifle while at a Russian military base. This video, just released by the Russian Defense Ministry, Visiting a training ground for newly mobilized soldiers, Vladimir Putin gets a briefing, enters the firing range to observe target practice, then strides out on the range himself, dons his eye and ear protection, hits the dirt alongside the others, and takes aim. He dusts off his coat, hugs a soldier, then continues his inspection of newly mobilized troops. What's really remarkable is, given how uh, Russia is suffering battlefield reverses, that Putin is willing to not only uh, take ownership of the war, but appears to double down on it by by picking up a gun himself and sort of saying, I'm here fighting 
with you. Here's an exchange where Putin asks a soldier if he's got everything he needs in training. The soldier responds, no issues, sir, and Putin wraps his knuckle on the table in approval. But one clip from near the front lines recently played by CNN portrays the opposite. Newly mobilized Russian soldiers in the Luhansk region complaining. We've got this shit for training, 11 days from when we were deployed. We left Moscow 11 days ago. How many times did you shoot already? Once. Three bullet cartridges. Analysts say Putin's recent order to mobilize 300,000 more troops is beset with problems. It appears that more Russian men have fled the country than have agreed to uh, go along with Putin's conscription. So this is at a very uh, delicate moment with the war. What we're seeing instead is an airbrushed Kremlin depiction of Russia's mighty army. And we know quite vividly what has happened to that army on the battlefield inside Ukraine. It's being shredded. But for Putin, displays like this are a go-to move to galvanize support. In the past, the Kremlin's put out propaganda images of him riding a horse shirtless on a bare-chested fishing expedition, descending in a small submarine, hiking on a hillside, thoughtfully pondering nature on a fallen tree. We've seen him in organized hockey games, magically scoring multiple goals. But one analyst says Putin's strongman act at this point in a grinding war has gotten stale. Putin himself just celebrated his 70th birthday, and I don't think most Russians are taken in by the image of their leader. I think they are scared of the horribleness of the war in Ukraine. They're worried about their family members being sucked into it. Part of the irony of Vladimir Putin managing his image and his messaging on the war so carefully, observers say, is that there have been complaints from Russian families that the Russian government hasn't always been very good about giving information to the relatives of Russian soldiers that their sons have been killed or wounded in the war. Some families complaining that they've had to get that information from social media, word of mouth or other means. Brian Todd, CNN, Washington. Coming up after this, we'll be speaking about rebuilding Ukraine with the nation's infrastructure minister. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back and recapping one of our top stories today. 40 percent, an estimated 40 percent of Ukraine's energy infrastructure has been damaged by Russian attacks over the past 10 days, leading to power blackouts as winter approaches. On Thursday, Germany said Russia's, quote, scorched earth tactics are only strengthening the Western alliance against Moscow. And the United States has now agreed to set up a joint infrastructure task force with Ukraine. The aim is to bolster Ukraine's ability to meet critical wartime needs and to support reconstruction efforts after the conflict ends. Joining us to discuss this and more, Alexander Kuprikov, the Ukrainian infrastructure minister. And he's joining us now from New York. Minister, great to have you on the show today. Let's start with this strategic partnership with the United States. I know you're here having discussions about the future, too. What does this agreement? mean in practice today? And does it guarantee investment? Thank you very much for your question. Uh, for us, it's very important uh, to feel, to see uh, support from the United States of America. We, for the moment, uh, we thank you for the support, for military supply, for direct financial support of our budget. But infrastructure recovery is also important. At the moment, we are focusing only on critical objects. We are focusing on transport infrastructure on energy sector, uh, we are talking this phase like survival phase and survival projects. Uh, from uh, United States of America, of, uh, the Secretary of uh, Transport Department, of Commercial Department, 
uh, we received strong signals that uh, they will support us. And, and again, uh, for the moment, we understand the war is continuing and uh, the key priority is projects which will help us to win. But those projects, I think I'm reading between the lines here, will begin after the war ends, as opposed to efforts to rebuild before then. Is that correct? Yes, uh, f- f- like top priority for us, it's to continue, it's to, to maintain uh, transport connectivity between regions, between uh, our main cities, uh, in order to supply military su- military uh, staff, in order to uh, provide humanitarian corridors, and in order to uh, maintain our economy. Uh, this is our top priority. The same with energy sector. Uh, winter is coming, uh, and we need to repair as soon as possible our substations, our uh, power generation. So, so I mean, th- th- this is top priority for the moment. I'm sure that's the first thing, actually, that you're being asked is, what is the situation today? How many people are we talking about that now are suffering with these rolling blackouts, some power at certain times and, and not others? What, what can you tell us about the situation in the country at this moment and, and the message that you're giving to, to people as you travel around the world? Uh, first of all, uh, yeah, I tried uh, to explain. During the last several weeks, uh, we deoccupied a thousand of square kilometers of our territory. So we have we have success and we are succeeding. We are winning on battlefield. At the same time, uh, Russians are trying to change uh, their tactics and they try to uh, they're doing like terrorists. They're trying to hit our uh, largest cities uh, to make life of our people more complicated. And they changed during the last two weeks. They attacked uh, energy sector, uh, substations, electricity substations, power generation stations. So, uh, for us, uh, for sure, it's life uh, of our people in large cities becoming more complicated. Uh, during the last attack, uh, uh, I mean, it, it depends on uh, on damages, but. In some cases, it can take half a day without electricity for the large city, for millions of, millions of people. In some cases, it could take even two days. Uh, but we are doing our best. All services are working. Uh, president uh, take uh, control of the situation personally. Each day uh, he has uh, meetings with uh, responsible services. So uh, I think uh, we, uh, I think, and actually fortunately for for support of our allies, uh, air defense system is working and uh, more than more, more than 70%, 80% depends on the uh, rockets were shooted by our air defense system, by our military people. So, uh, and the uh, situation is complicated, but uh, again, it's new phase of the war. I want to ask you about protection of the skies and, and air systems defences. But I just want to go back to what you were saying there about, about the short-term infrastructure damage. And, and you mentioned it, and we were showing pictures there of what looks to be pretty devastated um, energy supply facilities. Do you have any sense of time, given the current level of damage, how long these rolling blackouts that are now being imposed will last? I know it's difficult and it's, it's early days. I mean, it's very. Uh, this question very related. Uh, how soon mm. our air defense system will be will be improved, will be, will be upgraded? I mean, in case if it will be on the same level, so we expect new damages. In case if we will receive, uh, with the help of our allies, uh, air defense systems, new systems, more rockets, I think we will be ready to protect and in parallel we repair all these damages which we received during the last two weeks. 
And I, I ask you as a member of the government now, really, rather than the infrastructure minister, do you have any further information on when additional support to protect the skies will be provided? Uh, uh, first of all, thank you for Germany for the first provided iris yes. system. It's very efficient. It shows uh, very good results. And we expect from uh, US, uh, US side uh, very soon in the coming weeks, first NASM system. So, so it's also important and hope that uh, we heard uh, quite a good news last week from France, from Spain, from other countries. So I hope UK also they're trying to find us uh, some systems. So uh, I hope that uh, in the coming weeks uh, we will upgrade our systems. And our military people, they are doing fantastic jobs. They uh, train, uh, they, they try to use this all new equipment in, in a days. They trained immediately. So I think uh, even with these uh, challenges, uh, with the, again, with support of our allies, we will win even, even this war in air. It's, I know it's difficult to answer the question. Should we assume weeks rather than days for the rolling blackouts? Uh, I think I think I, th- I think it's uh, I mean situation is uh, unpredictable. But uh, again, uh, our people, our people and our government, our team, president, we are ready for any uh, scenario. Uh, what we see, is our people committed. Everybody ready to suffer, but in order to win. You know, the message that we keep hearing after these attacks, and as you said, it's a a new way of waging war with these strikes on on critical infrastructure and on the largest cities, that it's only strengthening the Ukrainian people's resolve in standing up in defence of their country. Uh, I just wanted to ask... You're absolutely right. Please. No, no, sorry, sorry, sorry for interruption. I was just going to ask whether whether that's the case and, and what the message is perhaps to Ukrainian people at this moment and, and what you want people outside of Ukraine to, to understand about what people are still going through and still fighting for. Uh, people protect uh, their own country. Uh, everybody understands this. Everybody feels that our uh, army on battlefield is winning in southern part, in northern part, in eastern part, uh, in spite of all these hundreds of thousands of new drafted uh, people in Russian army. Uh, and uh, they understand that uh, all these uh, attacks on energy sector, it's like uh, attempt attempts to uh, make the life of our people more complicated. And uh, this idea of Russian uh, Russian president, probably Russian, Russian military people, but it won't work. Uh, our people during last eight months showed uh, shown that they are uh, ready to wait. They are support army, and they're ready to suffer. So we we understand what we are fighting for. We are we are fighting for our country. Even in the deepest of winter, when and if we pray they aren't, but people are, are cold and suffering without light. Still, no negotiation with Russia until they leave. Is that correct? Absolutely. Until until we win, until they leave our territory. Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. We wish you well. You're in our thoughts, you and your people. Thank you. Thank you, sir. The Ukrainian infrastructure minister there. Okay, coming up here on First Move. 
More Twitter turmoil as Musk's deal deadline creeps closer. What potential layoffs in a security review could mean for the company? Tech analyst Anne Ives after the break. Welcome back to First Move and a highly volatile start to the trading day on Wall Street this Friday. The major averages seeing large swings in early trade amid ongoing concerns about rising bond yields and the ever-strengthening U.S. dollar. You've heard it all before. This week, also notable for a relentless parade of downbeat economic exclamations from the likes of Jeff Bezos, the Amazon boss, former Amazon boss, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon and Elon Musk, who are all worried about recession. A conference board survey also shows an overwhelming 98 percent of U.S. CEOs anticipate a recession as well as possible layoffs. Q, a report from The Washington Post saying Elon Musk has discussed cutting some 75 percent of Twitter's workforce with potential investors if and when he takes control of the social media platform. Twitter shares currently down by more than 4 percent. Also on fears that the $44 billion takeover deal might be up for a U.S. national security review. And Elon Musk once again commenting on Russia's war in Ukraine. After Russia's former president, Dmitry Medvedev, tweeted about Liz Truss' resignation in the UK, stick with me, the Tesla CEO responded, tweeting, quote, pretty good troll, to be honest. By the way, how's it going in Bakhmut? Medvedev responded, quote, see you in Moscow for Victory Day. This is the reality on the ground. CNN's Fred Pleitgen was recently there when it's a place which has been dealing with a barrage of Russian shelling. So we're taking cover here because we just had some incoming artillery fire. We're going to wait and uh, hope that there's not any hits anywhere close to us. We're at the receding end of a full Russian artillery barrage. Photojournalist Richard Harlow tracks several of the projectiles whizzing close over our heads. Katrusia says Ukrainian troops face this kind of shelling several times a day. All of this comes as the deadline for Musk to close the deal for Twitter quickly approaches. The billionaire has until October 28th to seal the deal if he wants to avoid a trial. Joining us now is Dan Ives, Managing Director and Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Dan, great to have you with us. And, and forgive me this question for this question, but I feel if I were an investor, I would be asking you this. Um, there's clearly much to discuss. And, and we know that Elon Musk is also helping Ukraine with the provision of Starlink satellite technology. But when you see him on Twitter engaging with the deputy chairman of the Security Council in Russia, it sort of raises all sorts of questions. Dan, do you just stick to the fundamentals where Elon Musk and his businesses are concerned, or is this arguably a worry, an ongoing Look, worry? It's hard. It's hard to ignore because mm. it's just so horrific in terms of what's going on in Ukraine. The fact that Musk does tweets like that, Julie, it just keeps the the, the theme here is that, and you've seen it in Tesla's stock, is that 
this is a CEO right now that continues to sort of get further and further away from really who he was called two, three years ago. And I think that's part of the frustration with Twitter. You talk about the national security potential review, the 75% cuts. This is just a twilight zone circus show that continues to take other twists and turns with Musk leading the way. As you mentioned, this security review, the reports of a potential U.S. security review, one of the members of my team pointed out this morning, and it, it really did make me think that uh, the conversations with, with Russian officials, perhaps, and some of the questionable comments that he's made, perhaps raise the probability of that review. And, and maybe that's something that he's trying to do. We know that, as he said on his earnings call, that he's overpaid in this deal. Dan, it's tough to know whether that's a credible concern or not. But again, I sort of throw the question to you. Look, I mean, from a valuation, he's basically paying $44 billion for something that's probably worth $25 billion, $30 billion at most. It's a disaster train wreck deal. And when you start to look at some of these things that are happening in the background, I mean, look, for Musk, the only way out is ultimately if the financing falls through or obviously if there's an increased government review. Mm. And I think that's why you're seeing Twitter stock sell off the way it is. Uh, I can't disagree with you. What about cutting the way as a way to growth? A 75% cut of the workforce for any business is mind-boggling, even if there's reports behind the scenes that Twitter was already thinking about cutting its own workforce before this sort of deal negotiation began by around a quarter. Dan, what what do you make of of those reports with, with Twitter? Look, and I, the reality is, is that he's just trying to get cash flow as high mm. as it can on Twitter to try to get outside financing. The reality is 75% cut would take this company back three, four, five years. It would be a disastrous scenario in terms of what that would do to Twitter. But I think it just shows his back's against the wall. He ultimately got into a horrific deal looking for any way in terms of from a financing perspective. And I think this just shows in terms of some of the desperation that you're seeing to try to get outside financing, because otherwise it's a must that stuck with the bill. This deal is going to happen outside of something anomalous, and it's going to be a significant you know, pill to swallow paying you know, essentially, he's selling caviar and Tesla stock to buy a $2 slice of pizza in New York City with Twitter. What an analogy. It's got corporate radar feel about it as well with those kind of cuts, to your point, just to simply raise cash flow. Um, specifically on the deal, then, it did sort of catch my attention, this idea that if you try and do a subscription model, uh, I believe that the, the users who use the most ads or view the most ads are the top 1%, and they're also most likely to be the ones that, that take up a subscription. So are you cannibalizing your own advertising uh, revenue creation in, in introducing a subscription model? Because if you want to raise revenues, there's a huge problem there if that's the case. Well, that's the biggest problem with Twitter. It's always, that's why this is a company that's been on a treadmill for the last decade. For monetization, subscription, how do you ultimately increase content? Now, when Musk talks about the super X and call it a China super app type model, you know, down the road, okay, that makes sense. But in the near term, Everest like uphill battle to turn around Twitter. And that's why for Musk, the easy part was buying Twitter. The hard Herculean part is going to be turning it around. Yeah. And look how easy the buying was. Um, not 
Let's talk about the caviar. Let's talk about Tesla because we got the earnings this week. You have lowered your price target, but clearly it's still significantly above where we are today. Did he assuage your concerns about supply, about stability, about the future, particularly in light of what we know in 2023 is going to be a barrage of competition from other names in electric vehicles hitting the market? Yeah. I mean, look, it's an EV arms race, uh, especially mm. going 2023. You see it in Europe, in the U.S. as well as China. They continue to be massive leaders in EVs. So I think the demand story continues to be robust going 2023. But look, the reality is it's been a Cinderella ride since second half 2018. And this is a major rough patch in terms of supply chain as well as demand around the edges. Must needs to navigate, pilot on the plane to get through this. But the worry is about selling more Tesla stock. And just like how we start off, these antics and sideshow continue to really be what I view as a black eye for Musk that, that I think tainted his view in the eyes of many investors in the near term. Yeah, I, th- I think if uh, if this has been a Cinderella ride for Tesla, I think most of the investors with the volatility that they've seen are saying, we're ready for the princess. Bring it on, please. We're ready for the princess. Dan? Always great to chat to you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Dan, as their Managing Director and Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Thank you. OK, coming up after the break, I think you've got a foolproof password for everything. Think again. Even our star correspondent, Donny O'Sullivan, comes up short against the hackers. Important advice to protect yourself next. Welcome back. Remembering passwords, one of the banes of our lives and thinking up new ones are never easy either. CNN's Donia Sullivan thought he was pretty password savvy until he allowed a hacker to test his online accounts. Just take a look at how easy it is to crack the codes. So it's been three years since you last hacked me here in Vegas, Rachel. Yep. You have stolen about two and a half thousand dollars worth of hotel points. A lot has changed. There's been a pandemic. There's a new president. I am still wearing the same shirt, though, so. Oh, yeah. You have put me in a middle seat. On a five-hour flight. Oh, my God. This time, I mean, as far as I know, you haven't broken into any of my accounts so far or anything like that. No, I'm about to do that right now. Okay. Most people, when they log into their accounts, they reuse their passwords or they change it just ever so slightly. And when you do that, if you've been in a breach, which all of us have, that means I can take that password and I can shove that into all the other sites that you log into. I have been using quite a few of the same passwords over the years. I've gotten a bit better with some accounts. I guess we'll find out. Um, I'm gonna go to a data breach repository site and I'm gonna put in your email address. You can see here that you're involved in 13 breaches just with this email address alone. Wow. Online, there are sites that collect all that breach information like email addresses and passwords, and it's likely some of your data is in there too. We have our first password that I found. Does that look familiar to you, Donnie? Yeah, that's a password I still uh, use today occasionally. (laughs) Okay, so you were using that on LinkedIn. Many times. Tip number one, don't use the same password for different services. Your password for your Gmail should be different to the password for your Instagram. If one of these services gets attacked and your password is leaked, hackers can use it to get into a different site if you're using that same password. The hackers got a lot of information, some of which included a hash. We also were able to crack one of your passwords. The other half is Evan. He's the other half of Social Proof Security. I want to bring him in here and show you 
what it looked like when he cracked your password. Evan emerges from the darkness. <laughs> Come hey, on Evan. in here, Evan. I can take all the passwords that we know about you, put it in a word list, and then try 10,000 different little tweaks that you'll probably try. I can add a number at the end, I can add a special character. And we did that for your password list, and we cracked one of your new passwords. Is this a password that you use now? Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about that? I... <laughs> Tip number two, don't use very similar passwords across different websites if you don't want people like Evan being able to figure out your password. I should probably go change my passwords. That's not great. It's not. So what are the tips for people not to be like me? Well, first and foremost, it is on the companies to avoid getting hacked and prevent breaches like this. Mm. Many companies do not use MFA internally, that second step when they're logging in. We need them to use that. MFA is multi-factor authentication, which is when they text you a code or whatever after you put in your password. Text you a code, you look at an app, you have a prompt on your phone, that's your second step. So if I get your password, I still can't log into your account because I don't have that code. Don't reuse your passwords. If you reuse your passwords across multiple sites, even for sites that you deem silly or kind of a throwaway site, I can take that password and I can use it against you. So you have to use long, random and unique passwords for every single site, I recommend storing it in a password manager, which keeps all of your passwords safe and encrypted and can generate good passwords for you. You're actually lucky I'm still here because my whole entire team, as well as myself, is now going to change all our passwords. <laughs> okay, I'm finally. The day Swifties have been waiting for has arrived. Taylor Swift's new album, Midnight's, is out. The 11-time Granny Award winner teased the release with this post on Instagram. She describes her 10th studio album as a collage of intensity, highs, lows, ebbs and flows. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next and I'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.